Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. Squanto continued with them and was their interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. He directed them how to set their corn, where to take fish, and to procure other commodities, and was also their pilot to bring them to unknown places for their profit, and never left them till he died. That's a quote from Of Plymouth Plantation, William Bradford's first-hand account of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony in Massachusetts by the Pilgrims. This first encounter with Squanto, the Native American, occurred in March of 1620. Now, Squanto is a well-known figure in American history, primarily because of his connection to the all-American holiday of Thanksgiving. Scott and I are here to tell you about the Catholic dimension of that story. Squanto, whose native name was Tisquantum, was born around 1580 or 1585 in the village of Pawtuxet, who were part of the Wampanoag Tribal Confederation. The Wampanoag were located near Cape Cod, in the southeastern part of Massachusetts. In the 17th century, Squanto's tribe came in contact with some of the earliest English colonists, and it's believed that in 1605, Squanto was possibly kidnapped by English Captain George Weymouth, who had been commissioned by the British Plymouth Company to explore the coasts of Maine and Massachusetts. And for almost a decade, Squanto possibly lived in captivity in England, with Sir Ferdinando Gorges, who owned the British Plymouth Company. And I say possibly, because this tale of Squanto's kidnapping and slavery in England is a point of some historical debate. One of Weymouth's shipmates wrote an account of capturing five native boys who were subsequently taken to England, but does not name Squanto among the five names he provides for the Indians. It wasn't until half a century later that Gorges, in a memoir, named Squanto as one of the five, but he mentioned the capture at Pemaquid, present-day Bristol, Maine, which is over 200 miles from Squanto's home of Pawtuxet. Also, in 1605, Squanto should have been in his early 20s, not exactly a young boy, as described in the original account. For almost a decade, these natives, which probably did not include Squanto, lived in England before returning to New England. In 1614, most historians agree that Squanto was captured, most likely for the first time, but possibly for a second. It's assumed Squanto encountered John Smith to become an interpreter and guide for Smith. John Smith is best known for his connection to Jamestown, which was the first permanent British colony in North America. And John Smith is well known for his association with Pocahontas, who rescued him from execution when he had been captured by her tribe. One of Smith's lieutenants, Thomas Hunt, kidnapped Squanto along with two dozen other Wampanoag Indians. Hunt then took them to Spain to sell them in the slave market at Malaga. Located on the southern coast of Spain, Malaga had been a commercial center during the Mohammedan rule of the Iberian Peninsula until it was liberated in 1487 during the Spanish Reconquista. The details of what transpired next are shrouded in the clouds of history. What we do know is that Squanto and some, if not all, of the Wampanoag Indians managed to become free of their captors. The most widely accepted version of this history has Spanish Franciscan friars rescuing the Indians, most likely ransoming them to set them free. The Franciscan role in liberating the slaves was not something new in the Catholic world. Now, the topic of 
Catholicism or Christianity and slavery is a really big one. Maybe there's a podcast on that topic in our future. I don't know. But I'm not going to cover it all in this episode, so I'm going to offer a bit of a summary, admitting that I'm leaving out a lot of the details and nuances of the story, but hopefully it's enough to get the gist. In the ancient world, in civilizations such as those ruled by the Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and Assyrian empires, slavery was a common practice. As Christianity spread through the Roman Empire in the early centuries of the first millennium AD, the rationale for enslavement began to crumble. Slavery wasn't immediately exterminated under the sway of Christianity, but the influence of gospel teaching was instrumental in the gradual decline of the practice. The hitherto pervasive view that race, class, or sex bestowed intrinsically superior or inferior status was antithetical to Christian teaching, which was embodied in St. Paul's insistence that there is no longer slave or free, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3. Slavery transmogrified into the relatively less oppressive institution of serfdom, and that too gradually gave way to fuller freedom during the Middle Ages. But just as this trend was progressing, chattel slavery, that's what we as Americans tend to think of as slavery, think of slavery in the South before the Civil War, that type of slavery was revived during the Age of Exploration. The agriculture of the New World reignited demand for slaves, and the discovery of new non-Christian, and from the European perspective, non-civilized peoples, created in the minds of some justification for enslavement. In this new chapter in the history of slavery, it can't be said that the voices of churchmen were univocal and unqualified, but it can be said that many Catholic figures, including popes, distinguished themselves as champions of the dignity of slaves and as enemies of the institution of slavery. By the time of Squanto in the 1600s, religious orders already had a long history of purchasing the freedom of slaves. There were religious orders dedicated to this ministry, the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, or the Order of Our Lady of Ransom, redeemed more than a million slaves during the late medieval and renaissance periods. Bartolome de las Casas is probably the most famous figure in this history. He was a Dominican priest working in the Caribbean and South America, and he became distressed at the enslavement and treatment of the native peoples by the Spanish and protested vigorously to the Spanish authorities. Popes condemned the enslavement of natives very early in the Age of Discovery. In 1435, Pope Eugene IV issued Sicut Didum, which condemned the actions of the Spanish who were making slaves of the natives of the newly colonized Canary Islands off the coast of Africa. We order and command, he wrote, all in each of the faithful, that they restore to their pristine liberty all in each person who were once residents of said Canary Islands, who have been made subject to slavery. These people are to be totally and perpetually free. Now, Pope Eugene was targeting a particular situation but more sweeping was the bull Sublimus Deus of Paul III. I've often used this document in my church history class because it's such a striking and clear example of the church's teaching on this matter. We consider, however, this is Pope Paul III, that the Indians are truly men and that they are not only capable of understanding the Catholic faith, but according to our information, they desire exceedingly to receive it. Desiring to provide ample remedy for these evils, we define and declare by these our letters that, notwithstanding whatever may have been or may be said to the contrary, 
The said Indians and all other people who may later be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or the possession of their property, even though they be outside the faith of Jesus Christ, and that they may and should freely and legitimately enjoy their liberty and the possession of their property, nor should they be in any way enslaved. Should the contrary happen, it shall be null and have no effect. These condemnations were reiterated by numerous popes in the centuries following. To what extent Catholic people, including religious sisters, priests, and even bishops, honored this teaching is another question altogether, but that's a topic for another day. Although many non-Catholic Christians would become active in the abolitionist movement in England and the United States in the 19th century, most Protestants accepted the enslavement of Native American and African peoples in the early centuries of colonization and conquest. A notable exception was the Society of Friends, the Quakers, who were opposed to slavery from the time of their beginning in the 1600s. But in most colonies, slavery was instituted very early. The notorious New York Times 1619 Project highlights the beginning of the slave trade in Virginia. Slavery was also rampant in Maryland among both Catholics and Protestants. But it was also common, maybe less well-known, in the North, including in New England. And that brings us back to Squanto. These previously mentioned Spanish Franciscan friars, after having freed the Wampanoag to save their bodies from physical slavery, proceeded to teach them the faith and baptize them, to save their souls from spiritual slavery, in some ways similar to Saints Peter Nolasco and Raymond Anatus and the Mercedarians, which Kevin mentioned, and covered in our Catholic History Trek episode on Our Lady of Ransom. After acquiring freedom in Spain, Squanto traveled north to London and lived with a merchant, most likely John Slaney, who is treasurer of the Newfoundland Company. And it was through the Newfoundland Company that saw Squanto finally, in 1619, return to New England, serving Captain Dermer as an interpreter and intermediary between the captain and the natives. Unfortunately, this arrangement did not turn out as either Squanto or Captain Dermer had hoped. Squanto discovered his home village of Patuxet had been wiped out by disease, and after several narrow escapes from attacks by native Indians, Dermer's crew finally met their fate at Martha's Vineyard. Most of the crew were killed, while Squanto was, again, made a captive this time by fellow Wampanoag Indians. This was now the second time Squanto had been apprehended, or possibly the third. In 1620, Massasoit, the leader of these Wampanoags who had imprisoned Squanto, fortuitously moved Squanto from Martha's Vineyard to a different village of Poconoket. By the fall of 1620, Puritans arrived, settling in the area once inhabited by Squanto's tribe. Now, we can't understand Puritanism without knowing something about post-Reformation England. Remember King Henry VIII, who started the English Reformation and introduced Protestantism into the Kingdom of England. There was a brief Catholic interlude with Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary, who died in 1558. But from that time forward, England was rigidly Protestant from the time of Queen Elizabeth onward. Now, officially, there was one church in England, and the king, or queen, was the head of that church. But in fact, theology and liturgical practices varied widely. There was a high church type of Anglicanism, which is close to Catholicism in its theology and in its liturgy. And there's also a low church Anglicanism, which was more Calvinist in theology and practice. And then there was everything in between. 
So there was tension, sometimes erupting into conflict between these various forms of Anglicanism. One very low church version was Puritanism, which arose in the late 16th century. The name comes from the idea that they were on a crusade to purify the Church of England, meaning specifically eliminate Catholic elements from theology and worship. Puritans were further divided between non-separatists who wanted to remain within the Church of England to reform it, and separating or separatist Puritans who thought the Church of England was beyond redemption and it was time to leave. These groups sometimes went too far in the view of the royal and ecclesiastical English authorities, and so they were at times persecuted and even exiled. In that respect, not unlike the Roman Catholics in England at the time. The Pilgrims were one of these separatist groups, and they sought religious freedom in Massachusetts in the early 1600s, thus the Mayflower and Plymouth Rock and Squanto and the rest. But Scott can describe more of the Pilgrim story. During the reign of King James, who lends his name to the infamous King James Version of the Bible, and who's covered in our Catholic history trek on Guy Fawkes and the failed gunpowder plot to blow him up with Parliament, a group of these Puritans left England for the Dutch Netherlands, where Calvinist Protestantism was tolerated. These separatists settled in Leiden, Holland, and formed a community, but after about a decade, these Puritan immigrants had become disillusioned with their new Dutch home. They witnessed the influence of Dutch culture eroding their purely English identity, and some of the Puritan children even left their families to join up as Dutch sailors or soldiers. The Netherlands was also in the midst of what became known as the Eighty Years' War, during which the Netherlands rebelled and spent eight decades slowly breaking away from the Spanish Empire from 1568 to 1648. Fearing continued fighting between the Dutch and the Spanish and seeking to preserve their English identity these Puritans decided to move again. This time they chose to move to New England, where they could still find religious toleration, but could also retain their English culture as subjects of the English crown. Because they didn't have financial means to trek across the ocean and establish their new colony on their own, they entered into an agreement with financial investors. In exchange for the supplies needed for the voyage and settlement, they would send natural resources back to their investors over a period of seven years. So they bought a ship, the Speedwell, and sailed to Southampton, England, where they joined another ship, the Mayflower, a large cargo ship which had been rented for the voyage. In the summer of 1620, these two ships set off together for New England. If you don't remember hearing about the Pilgrims and the Speedwell, there's a reason for that. Unfortunately, troubles with leaking on the Speedwell forced the group to turn back twice, before ultimately making a third attempt to cross the Atlantic Ocean in only the Mayflower. With their passengers reduced to 102, they embarked on this third attempt on the 16th of September, and after 66 days at sea, they reached New England on November 11th of 1620. But it wasn't until a month later, on the 16th of December, that they began to build their settlement at Plymouth Harbor. They struggled mightily that first winter to survive in the American frontier, weakened by sickness and battered by the cold weather. After finally reaching their new home, Death was a daily companion to these colonists, and by the spring of 1621, only 52 people had survived. These men and women became known as pilgrims, which seems to be a name they gave themselves. According to the Plymouth and Patuxent Museums of Plymouth, Massachusetts, one of their members and their second governor, William Bradford, referred to themselves as pilgrims 
when he wrote of their departure from Holland to come to America. Also, when William and Susanna White's son was born on the Mayflower in late November, still anchored in harbor, as the first child born of the group of pilgrims, they named him Peregrine. Besides being a good name for a hobbit, Peregrine means traveler, wanderer, or pilgrim, essentially confirming their view that they were pilgrims. So Scott, it seems like peregrination actually could have been in the title for our podcast instead of Catholic History Trek, Catholic History Peregrination. (laughs) But I don't even remember that being part of the discussion. I'm not sure why. No, I think we were, I don't know if we're more focused on sci-fi or what it was, but yeah, anything tied to J.R.R. Tolkien would be appropriate also as a good Catholic. I think it could be due to the fact that peregrination isn't quite as catchy as Trek, but anyway. By that spring, these pilgrims were befriended by a Wampanoag Indian named Samoset, who spoke a little broken English. Samoset eventually introduced them to the tribe, and on March 22nd, Governor John Carver and Massasoit agreed to a treaty, which led to 50 years of peace between the two sides. The pilgrims agreed not to attack the tribe and to form a mutual defensive pact with them. In exchange, the tribe freed the English-speaking Squanto, who proceeded to live with the pilgrims, teaching them how to grow crops like corn and how to survive in New England. And William Bradford, who had replaced Carver as the second governor of Plymouth, later referred to Squanto in his journal, as Kevin mentioned in our introduction, a special instrument sent from God. In August of 1621, Squanto was abducted again, this time by a rival tribe seeking power in the region. If you're keeping track, this was now Squanto's third abduction, or possibly fourth, with the last two coming at the hands of fellow Indians. After this last abduction, it wasn't Franciscans, but pilgrims who freed him. A raiding party led by Captain Miles Standish ended up rescuing Squanto. By the fall of 1621, the pilgrims had grown enough food to survive the upcoming winter, far better than they had fared in 1620. And so, the pilgrims invited Massasoit and his tribe to Plymouth for a three-day feast in what has become known as the First Thanksgiving. Despite the hero status he often earns for saving the pilgrims, Squanto is far from perfect. He reportedly used his position of influence to seek political power, even going so far as to stir trouble between the pilgrims and Wampanoag when it was seemingly advantageous. This political maneuvering was discovered, and the pilgrims secured a second less troublesome Wampanoag advisor, Habamok, who joined them in Plymouth. Squanto, for his part, also remained in Plymouth, fearing retribution if he should return to the Wampanoag village. A year later, in November of 1622, Squanto died from the same European disease that had wiped out the other members of his village. Governor William Bradford left us these lines about Squanto's passing. Squanto fell ill of the Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take as a symptom of death, and within a few days, he died. He begged the governor to pray for him, that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven and bequeath several of his things to his English friends as remembrances. His death was a great loss. The 1621 Thanksgiving with Squanto and the Pilgrims is the one that American school kids learn about. But this is not America's first Thanksgiving, It's merely the first Protestant Thanksgiving, which came nearly a century after the first Catholic Thanksgiving celebrations in America. Well, I will talk about the first Catholic Thanksgiving, but before I get to that, I just wanted to raise the question, Scott, I'm kind of surprised that 
we haven't talked yet about the firearms that were carried by either the Wampanoag or the Pilgrims. And I wonder if you know anything about that. Some type of musketry, probably. Well, that's one more thing I have to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. My co-host reminding me that not only did I fail to mention the Pilgrims' firearms, but I also forgot to highlight the Old Colony Railroad, which linked Plymouth to Boston and many other points throughout the eastern part of Massachusetts. This railroad ran from 1844 to 1893 until it became part of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad, which was later absorbed by Penn Central and then Conrail. Today, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority has a commuter line which runs to Plymouth with other portions of the old Colony Railroad being used by Amtrak's Acela High Speed Line and CSX for freight transportation. Regarding the question about the Pilgrims' firearms, you are correct that they would have had muskets, but contrary to popular opinion, the blunderbuss was not one of these firearms. The blunderbuss is the gun with the bell-shaped barrel. Instead, the three most common muskets at the time had smooth bores and straight barrels with either a matchlock, wheel lock, or flintlock firing mechanism. Excavations of Jamestown and Plymouth have uncovered a large number of what are called snap haunts, essentially a predecessor to the flintlock, which was developed and used in Scandinavia and the Netherlands. With the Pilgrims having spent a decade in Holland, it's not a surprise they would have brought many of these snap haunts firearms with them. In addition to muskets, the firearms would have also had fouling pieces, which were essentially early shotguns that were cheaper to make than muskets. Interestingly, from what I recall, the Peanuts episode, The Mayflower Voyagers, actually gets this correct. Instead of showing the stereotypical blunderbuss, they show a straight barrel on the firearms used by the pilgrims. They usually say you shouldn't rely too much on cartoons or Wikipedia for sourcing a Catholic history podcast, but in this case, I think the cartoon may be on the mark. Well, I certainly learned a lot of history from Peanuts, so I think we can go with that. Other first Thanksgivings have been proposed, most of them Catholic. Some Texas boosters have pointed to May 1641, when Father Juan Padilla held a service of Thanksgiving with Spanish soldiers led by Francisco Coronado near the northwest Texas town of Canyon. Some also advocate the 1565 Mass offered by Father Francisco Lopez at St. Augustine, Florida, after the explorer Pedro Menendez de Avales and his men came ashore. The Spanish shared a meal with nearby natives following the Mass. Protestants, not to be outdone, point to the French Huguenots who had Thanksgiving service a year earlier and a little north of St. Augustine. The fact is that services or Masses of Thanksgiving were common occurrences when explorers discovered or settled a new land during this era. So the material point here is that Thanksgiving is really a modern holiday established and fixed on the last Thursday in November by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. As for the first Thanksgiving, the various claimants are equally valid or invalid depending on your point of view. But I would say that there is something especially appropriate about the association of a mass with Thanksgiving, since the Greek term Eucharist means Thanksgiving. The mass is a good way to celebrate Thanksgiving, and there are many things to be thankful for. Had it not been for the Catholic position against slavery of the native inhabitants of the New World, and had it not been for the Franciscans living out that teaching and intervening to save Squanto and his fellow Wampanoag Indians from the slave market at Malaga, the American Thanksgiving holiday as we know it may not exist. But thanks to the Catholic Church and the Franciscans, 
we had a liberated Catholic Squanto returning to New England and saving the Pilgrims in their first year at Plymouth, without which the Pilgrims likely would have faded into one of the more obscure pages of history. And Thanksgiving in November would not see most Americans feasting on turkey, mashed potatoes, and pumpkin pie, nor would there be any shoppers waking up early the next morning for Black Friday sales. Speaking of Black Friday and Turkey and Thanksgiving, Kevin and I are recording this episode a few days before Thanksgiving, and with the annual Thanksgiving meal being such an integral part of the holiday, I thought it made sense to end our episode with the Catholic Prayer for Meals, prayed as is our Catholic History Trek tradition in the Church's historic language of Latin. Benedict nomine, nos et hec tua dona, quae tua largitate, sumus sumpturi, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.